1: Noah was six hundred years old when he went into the boat to escape the flood, and he did everything the Lord had told him to do. His wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law all went inside with him.
0: Genesis, chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, Contemporary English Version Hello! Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kaye. Today we're going to be doing the third episode in a new series that we are calling Archaeology and the Bible. Some scholars estimate that there are over 4,000 different religions in the world. With that many religions out there, it's reasonable to ask whether we can be sure which of those religions, if any, is true. The good news is that we can reasonably differentiate among the competing truth claims made by the various religions using logic, reason, and evidence. And one source of evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God is archaeology. Archaeology helps us to show an unbelieving world that the Bible contains a large body of reliable history. So, to help us continue our discussion today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., one of the big points that we are trying to make in this series is that archaeological finds can be a valuable source of support for the accuracy of the history that the Bible reports. In fact, the Bible's history has shown to be accurate even when doubted by secular historians, and we talked about that in our last episode of Anchored by Truth right?
2: Right. But before we get into the reminder of what we discussed last time, I'd also like to welcome everybody to Anchored by Truth. Just say hi to everybody. We hope that they enjoy these episodes, but mostly what we want them to learn through Anchored by Truth is that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, and its content is true. You know, at Anchored by Truth, we often say that there are four lines of evidence, at a minimum four lines of evidence, that help people understand that the Bible can be differentiated very easily from all the other books in the world that claim to be the Word of God. And those four lines of evidence are reliable history, remarkable unity, fulfilled prophecy, and redeemed destinies. And one of the ways that we can show that the Bible's history is reliable is is through archaeological finds. And there have been some pretty spectacular examples of the Bible getting history right, even when skeptics for centuries dismissed the accuracy of the Bible's reporting. And a great case in point that we talked about last time is the Bible's report on the existence of the ancient kingdom of Assyria and its famous capital city, Nineveh. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire literally disappeared beneath the sands of time in the 6th century BC, and for over 2,000 years, physical evidence of that once mighty empire went missing.
0: Nineveh disappeared so completely that a Greek writer, Lucian of Samosata, who lived from AD 120 through 180, once lamented Nineveh has perished, no trace of it remains. No one can say where once it existed, This lack of visible evidence caused many scholars and historians as late as the 19th century to doubt that the Assyrian Empire even existed, much less was once the dominant military power on Earth.
2: Yes, but then all that changed. The online Encyclopedia Britannica has this to say about the rediscovery of Nineveh, and I'm quoting now. The first person to survey and map Nineveh was the archaeologist Claudius J. Rich in 1820, a work later completed by Felix Jones and published by him in 1854. Sir Henry Layard, during 1845 to 1851, discovered the palace of Sennacherib and took back to England an unrivaled collection of stone-based reliefs, together with thousands of tablets inscribed in cuneiform from the great library of Ashurbanipal. That's the end of the quote.
0: But while secular history had lost sight of Nineveh and the Assyrians, the one witness to their existence that never wavered was the Bible. The Old Testament books of Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Nahum, and Jonah always contained a clear record of the existence of the Assyrians, even preserving names of some of its rulers and officials, the name of its capital, and even records of its conquests. Once the clay tablets were recovered from the great library by Henry Laird, the Bible's accounts were vindicated.
2: Right. No serious historian today doubts that the Assyrian Empire at one time dominated the Middle East. It was a very successful military power, and it posed a grave and mortal threat to the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Well, the Bible always contained a plain record of that fact, and today scholars worldwide accept that fact. So, one subject I want to delve in today is why, at one time, there was so much doubt about the Bible's reports about Assyria and Nineveh, despite the fact that the Bible's record was true and accurate.
0: Well, I suppose many, maybe most people, would say, before Richard Laird and the others who unearthed the ruins of Nineveh from the Iraqi desert, there wasn't any evidence that the Bible's account was accurate.
2: Well, I think you're quite right. Thank you. And that's what I want to talk about. Why do so many people doubt the Bible unless or until one of the Bible's accounts is confirmed by some extra-biblical source? The Bible is an ancient record, but there are a lot of ancient records from about that same time period. The Greeks had some very well-known historians, such as Herodotus and Xenophon. The Romans had historians like Tacitus and Pliny. The Jews had a very well-known ancient historian called Josephus. Well, when secular scholars read those ancient historians, they do not automatically doubt the accounts provided by those historians unless it's confirmed by another source, or unless there's an archaeological find that demonstrates it. But all too often, people will automatically doubt the Bible's records unless there is an extra-biblical source that comes along and shows that the Bible is right.
0: Oh... I see the point you're making. Even before Rich and Laird discovered the physical remains of Nineveh and the Assyrians, there was, in fact, very good evidence of their existence, because the Bible contained a record of their existence. But today, the tendency is to discount the Bible's record as having evidentiary value unless another source is available to confirm what the Bible says. Your point is that among a lot of scholars today, there seems to be an anti-biblical bias that says, in effect, Sure, it's in the Bible, but how do we know the Bible is true? Yet those same scholars don't bring the same attitude to other historical records from biblical times. The way the academic community, the journalists, and the media treat the Bible is exactly the opposite of the way they treat other ancient sources. The skeptics and critics will regard other records as being accurate on their face but they regard the Bible as being inaccurate unless confirmed. This is either ironic because, in fact, the Bible is what inspired many, if not most, of those early Middle Eastern archaeologists to go on their expeditions. They saw the Bible as being true, so they were willing to stake time and money to look for the ancient cities the Bible has said were there. If they had the same attitude as many people today have, they would never have set off on their expeditions.
2: Right. A belief in the Bible's accuracy inspired much, if not most, of the early archaeological exploration in Egypt, Israel, Iraq, Jordan, etc., just about everywhere in the Middle East. I mean, some of the greatest finds in archaeological history, such as the rediscovery of the city of Petra in modern-day Jordan— That kind of discovery may never have been brought to light if it weren't for the fact that the Bibles knew that that place, that city, must be there because the Bible said it was. Petra in Greek means rock-like or stony, and Petra is literally a city that's carved out of rock. And in the Bible, the city of Petra is located with the ancient kingdom of Edom. The Edomites were known as the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of the patriarch Jacob. Remember that Jacob was also known as Israel. Well, Esau was very red-haired, and in fact, he was a very hairy guy, and the city occupied by his descendants, interestingly enough, is also known for its distinctly red color of the stone in that area. So, it's interesting that when Petra was rediscovered, so much of the Bible's text was vividly confirmed. At any rate, the point is that there is often a tendency to doubt the Bible unless it is confirmed whereas the exact opposite attitude is taken with respect to other ancient documents. The histories compiled by Herodotus, Xenophon, etc., those are accepted as being generally reliable unless or until inaccuracies are shown.
0: Well, as you say, that wasn't the case 100 years ago, or maybe even 30 or 40 years ago. So, why is that the way now?
2: Well, in my opinion, it's because of the concerted pushback that has been occurring against Christianity and the Bible in the recent decades of the West. Christianity's values and ethics in particular have been under attack in the Western societies for a wide variety of reasons. They are frankly distasteful to the modern mind. But to effectively dispense with Christianity's values, you have to dispense with the source of those values, which is the Bible. So there's been a concerted effort in academia, the media, popular culture, to characterize the Bible as being a book filled with myths and fairy tales. Because once that idea is established, that the Bible is a book of myth and fairy tale, whether that allegation is true or not, once you get that idea established in the minds of many people, so much of the Bible's magisterial authority is going to be simply eliminated as being an influence in their lives.
0: That is not only sad, it's dangerous. The Bible contains the special revelation that God has given to mankind. We can no longer dispense with that revelation safely and without danger, then the patient can ignore the mechanic who has just told them that he has an issue with his car or truck that should be attended to. The driver can ignore the mechanic's advice, but not without risking catastrophe. With respect to ignoring the Bible, it's even more dangerous. Mechanics are human, they can be wrong. The Bible was inspired by God, and God is never wrong.
2: Well said. What people need to realize is that all people, all of us, approach our lives using a set of axioms. And these axioms form a sort of lens through which we see the world. Now, sometimes these axioms are obvious and reasonable. For instance, many of us will tend to see the advice given to us by properly qualified professionals as being useful and helpful. And that means we follow their advice. But you know, today, not all people operate by the axiom that the advice of the so-called professionals is useful or helpful.
0: Recent events in America and other Western nations have unfortunately caused previous trusting people to begin to doubt the advice they previously wouldn't have questioned. This may be medical advice, advice about nutrition and health, or prescriptions involving social, political, or cultural norms. Hmm, I see why we need to talk about this. The widespread confusion over the virus and how to deal with it has caused a lot of people to no longer trust medical advice they once would have never questioned. And sadly, tragically, something similar has happened in our culture with respect to the Bible. Twenty, thirty, 30, or 40 years ago, you could have settled a discussion by quoting the Bible. Today, if you quote the Bible, people are likely to say, So what?
2: Right. We all view life through a set of axioms, and quite often those axioms are ones that have been put into our lives by our families or our cultures, and we don't even question them. And the set of axioms that tend to surround us and shape how we think, many scholars and theologians will call that our worldview. Well, we can't afford to spend too much time today on that subject of worldview, because frankly, that's such a big subject, it would be a subject for an entire show or even an entire series. But it's important to recognize that worldviews and the set of axioms that help frame our worldviews, they tend to form the foundational manner in which we view or think about the world. And for a lot of us, for probably most of us, the ideas that form our worldview are unspoken and rarely even thought about. In fact, most of these axioms that form our worldview seem almost self-evident. Well, interestingly enough, this kind of unseen, unspoken axiom and worldview can have a powerful role in areas of academic or scientific study, such as archaeology. What are you talking about? Well, let's take a very specific example. Chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis clearly describe a worldwide flood. And despite the attempts of some of the critics to say that the flood was a localized or limited flood, the Genesis language is pretty clear. The flood endured by Noah and his family was worldwide and it essentially was so powerful that it reshaped the entire surface of the earth. And based on the time periods that we can derive by studying the genealogies elsewhere in Genesis, we can confidently say that this worldwide flood occurred just about 4,500 years ago.
0: The Amplified Bible, Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 and 20 say this, quote, the waters prevailed so greatly and were so mighty and overwhelming on the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. In fact, the waters became 15 cubits higher than the highest ground and the mountains were covered, unquote.
2: Yes, that's pretty clear language. But of course, despite the clarity of that language today, there are a great many people, including scientists, who deny that such a flood ever happened. Deep time uniformitarianism, and evolutionary thought rule the halls of academia, the discussions at most of the so-called science institutions, and popular thought. And thus it's become a widely accepted axiom in our culture and in archaeological thought that the flood never happened. So let's think about this for a second. If there was a worldwide flood about 4,500 years ago that reshaped the entirety of the Earth's surface and deposited huge amounts of sedimentary material all over the Earth, then none of the structures that we find on the Earth today are going to be older than 4,500 years.
0: It's not impossible that some artifacts or parts of buildings might be found in one of the layers deposited by all the water moving around. But with the kind of flood described in the Bible, nothing would have survived intact.
2: Right. So an archaeologist who accepts the Bible's flood account as being historical will rarely, if ever, be tempted to assign a date to ruins or an artifact older than 2500 BC, because that's about 4500 years ago, 2500 years before the time of the life of Christ. And so one of the axioms which would form a part of that archaeologist's approach to their craft would include the presence of the flood in ancient history. So they wouldn't have any reason to try to put a date on an artifact or a ruin earlier than 2500 B.C. But an archaeologist who denies the history of the Bible's flood account, they don't have any problem dating ruins or artifacts as being much older than 2500 B.C. And there are a number of sites around the world that have been assigned dates older than 2500 B.C. And similar older dates have been assigned to artifacts that have been found in those ruins. So Bible-denying archaeologists have an axiom in their worldview that says people have been around for hundreds of thousands of years and therefore ruins of human civilization as old as 5,000 or 10,000 B.C. or even older are possible. You see, the difference in the starting axioms between these two groups is going to lead to widely differing possibilities when they assign dates to ancient ruins, artifacts, or civilizations.
0: Let's remind our listeners of something we've talked about before. Historical science is not the same as operational science. In operational science, hypotheses can be tested and results of experiments repeated and affirmed or refuted. One scientist boils water at sea level at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, and other scientists around the world can replicate those results. That's operational science. But that is not true for historical sciences like archaeology, cosmology, paleontology, or the certain elements of geology that pertain to age. All any scientist can do is look at evidence available in the present and attempt to provide an explanation for what the evidence says about the past. And there is just about no way to dispositively confirm that explanation. The best scientists can do is provide explanations that can be tested against the evidence and determine whether that explanation is consistent or inconsistent with the evidence.
2: Agreed. Historical science is never going to reach the same level of certainty as operational science. Moreover, and this is really important, the number of scientists historians or archaeologists who may or may not accept a particular explanation does not determine the truth of that proposed explanation.
0: Or, said slightly differently, truth is not determined by majority opinion. We've talked before on Anchored by Truth that today geologists acknowledge that many of the great river valleys all over the world were created by truly epic floods. David R. Montgomery, a geology professor at the University of Washington, labeled the floods that created those river valleys noah like in a 2012 article for Discover Magazine. But in the same article, Montgomery noted that the first geologist to propose that the river valleys of eastern Washington were caused by such flood was J. Harlan Bretz. But when Bretz initially proposed his explanation in the 1920s, he was met with widespread disbelief. Yet the recognition that Bretz was correct is so widespread today that at the age of 97, Bretz was awarded the Geological Society of America's highest honor. When Bretz first proposed his explanation for the origin of river valleys in eastern Washington, he was a minority of one. But today, it is widely acknowledged that Bretz was right.
2: Exactly. And the same thing is true for the axioms that archaeologists or other scientists bring into their profession. Just because one, many, or most of the scientists or archaeologists believe that there has never been a worldwide flood, that has no bearing on the truth of whether a flood actually occurred. So what we want listeners to think about, to note, is that the rejection of the flood of Noah will greatly affect many of the explanations about archaeology that the flood deniers offer. Now, a specific instance of this that we're going to cover in greater depth in some future episodes is the ruins at Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey. Now, secular archaeologists date those ruins at Gobekli Tepe to about 11,000 to 12,000 years BC, before Christ and their assigned dating to those ruins is largely due to the results of radiocarbon dating.
0: But there are well-known problems with the accuracy of radiocarbon dating. Creation Ministries International has several excellent articles on their website that discuss these problems, so we won't go into them today, but we will mention one. Radiocarbon dating depends on a comparison between the amount of carbon-14 present in a sample, such as a wood fragment, with the amount of carbon-14 that is assumed to have been present when the sample was first formed. One basic problem is that we have no idea how much carbon-14 was originally present. The starting value to which the current amount is present is always an assumption. There is no way to know for sure what the starting value was. That's one reason we say that dates to artifacts or ruins are always assigned, not discovered. There is never any way to prove that assumptions that went into the assigned date are accurate. And it's quite common for different dating methods to differ widely in the assigned dates.
2: Yes. So, largely based on radiocarbon dating, the ruins at Gobekli Tepe have been dated far older than would be possible when considering the date for the Noahic flood. And this points out the importance of the set of starting axioms used by the date assigner.
0: So, how can we know who and what to
2: believe? By doing what we always recommend. Consider the evidence and apply logic and reason. Now, in the case of whether the Genesis flood occurred, there's an abundance of scientific and historical evidence that it did. And we've covered that evidence in depth a couple of times on Anchored by Truth. And the series that discuss the flood of Noah are available from our website, crystalseabooks.com. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L. S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com, com. So anybody who wants to study in greater depth the historical and scientific evidence for the flood can just go to those series. Well, in the case of whether the dating of the ruins of Gobekli Tepe are pre-flood or post-flood, One simple question to ask is whether the ruins that you find there are more consistent with a hunter-gatherer society or a society that possessed some level of mathematical and construction sophistication. Remember that the secular archaeologists tell us that for the dates they've assigned to those ruins, Human beings were still in a hunter-gatherer society. They hadn't even settled into an agricultural or agrarian society. So one simple question to ask yourself is, are the kinds of ruins that we see at Gobekli Tepe consistent with a hunter-gatherer society or whether they're more consistent with a society that already had some level of mathematical and construction sophistication. Well, in the case of the ruins at Gobekli Tepe, we now know that they were laid out with a level of mathematical precision that would be entirely inconsistent with a society that supposedly had not even entered a settled agricultural phase. But those ruins are consistent with a community that possessed the kind of technological sophistication that is described in Genesis chapters 4 through 6.
0: Let's remember that in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us that Adam was created with a sophisticated knowledge of many subjects. He possessed language, a knowledge of biology and botany, and the ability to reason and analyze comparative attributes. And, of course, Noah, in the pre-flood environment, was able to undertake a large naval architecture project. So, his descendants after the flood would have retained much of this knowledge. By contrast, an evolutionary viewpoint says that the man's predecessors knew nothing of math and technology and had to discover everything. So, in this case, what we know from the ruins is more consistent with a biblical explanation than the alternative.
2: Exactly. So, this line of reasoning can't reach the level of absolute certainty, but when we follow the line of reasoning, in the case of the ruins at Gobekli Tepe, we can certainly make the case that the biblical explanation for their existence and dating is at least as compelling, if not more so, than the flood-denying alternative. When people see reports of new and sensational archaeological discoveries in the news or on the internet that purportedly show how the Bible is wrong, people need to stop and think. And then they need to examine the worldview and the axioms of the group that made the discovery and then go and research and consider the biblical alternative. Well, I think when they do that, they're going to find out that every time the Bible will hold its own in each and every situation.
0: Well, this sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer that all of us would receive the ability to discern truth from the Holy Spirit, who is the only one that can truly illuminate the human
1: mind. Prayer for Illumination by the Holy Spirit Great and Mighty God, You are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for our souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you confirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. We praise you because you are the one who strengthens us against the powers of wickedness that attack our humanity. By ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one, but in you we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. Holy Spirit, you regenerate our hearts and bring light to our mind. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who imparts wisdom and give us the ability to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading. Time and again you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel, and you have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by you, abiding with us, and with the angels' cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God, and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. Is
0: the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
2: we're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S.com. Thank you for your support.